Now before, we're in 1 Peter, and before we, uh, before we get started this morning, I want to read to you out of a, a Psalm 139, one of the most uh, important pieces of Scripture we can read. It's one of the most comforting portions of Scripture we can read, and has great implications. Beginning in verse 13. For you formed me in my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. What a marvelous passage of Scripture on the value of human life. God himself personally and intimately made each one of us. He saw us in our mother's womb. He was right there from the beginning, and he'll be right there at the end. And one of the greatest, or the greatest tragedy, that as... uh, struck America has been our blindness to this truth. The devaluing of of human life and the failure to protect the most innocent among us and our nation has paid the price in every level of society. I want to read to you a, uh, a portion of a letter that Mother Teresa wrote to the Supreme Court of the United States in 1994 on this issue. America needs no words from me to see how your decision in Roe versus Wade has deformed a great nation. The so-called right to abortion has fitted mothers against their children and women against men. It has sown violence and discord at the heart of the most intimate human relationships. It has aggravated the derogation of the father's role in an increasingly fatherless society. It has portrayed the greatest of gifts, a child, as a competitor, an intrusion, and an inconvenience. It has nominally accorded mothers unfettered domination over the independent lives of their physically dependent sons and daughters. And in granting this unconscionable power, it has exposed many women to unjust and selfish demands from their husbands or other sexual partners. Human rights are not a privilege conferred by government. They are every human being's entitlement by virtue of his humanity. The right to life does not depend and must not be declared to be contingent on the pleasure of anyone else not even a parent or a sovereign. You must weep that your own government at present seem blind to this truth. I have no no teaching for America. I seek only to recall you to faithfulness, to what you once taught the world. Your nation was founded on the proposition, very old as a moral precept, but startling and innovative as a political insight. 
that human life is a gift of immeasurable worth and that it deserves always and everywhere to be treated with the utmost dignity and respect. Many of you are aware that uh, before the United States Supreme Court is now a case that could overrule Roe versus Wade. It won't disallow legalized abortion, but it will allow each state probably to decide whether they will allow abortion or not, or what restrictions they will have on it. So legalized abortion will not be eliminated, but it will be greatly, greatly reduced. So I'd like to take a moment of silence to pray for God's hand in all of this, that we as a people will wake up and once again value all life, just as God values all life. That we will see life as a gift, as Mother Teresa says, of immeasurable worth, whether inside or outside the womb. So let's take a moment, shall we, in silence, and uh, each of you pray, and then I'll close us. Lord, it is clear that uh, we have sinned as a country. And we have an opportunity out of your mercy to turn back to valuing life from the beginning to the end. So we pray, Lord, that uh, you will move mightily in our country right now. You will move in the hearts of the Supreme Court justices that they will make a decision for life, for God. And uh, let us never forget, and let us pray diligently for this decision. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's turn to First Peter, and uh, we're going to read uh, chapters 13 through, uh, through 21 today. Chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. Let me read those to you. For you form... No, that's the wrong one. (laughs) Here it is. Verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirits. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, 
as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he has foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. I uh, read a story not too long ago about a avid golfer. He's about 80 years of age, and he loved golf. But began to notice that his eyesight was failing and uh, so badly that he was unable to follow the flight of the ball and to see where it landed. So he uh, told his predicament to the club pro who said, well, I know a guy who's 80 years of old, who has, still has the vision of a fighter pilot. And if you can team up with him, then he can follow your ball and your problem will be solved. So the two old guys got together and on the first tee, the one with the failing eyesight um, hit the ball. And immediately he turned to the other guy and said, did you see where it went? And he said, yeah, yeah, I saw the whole thing. He said, well, where'd it go? I can't remember. (laughs) Memory. At my age, it's a frequent topic of discussion. (laughs) As we get older, we seem to forget things. Uh, Things are very familiar to us, mainly names, names of people. You know, I, I can sit in this church, I can look over at a pew at somebody I've known for 35 years and wonder who the heck is that? (laughs) But you know, names of people, names of places, names of things, uh, names of songs, and the list goes on. We've even been known to forget the day of the week. So memory fades as we grow older. But forgetfulness is a problem that plagues us all at any age. But it's a different kind of forgetfulness. It's a forgetfulness that's born out of a lack of use. Things happen and we we immediately tuck them into our memory banks, uh, seldom and rarely bringing them to the surface again. Unless we're reminded, they never see the light of day. So for all intents and purposes, our memories are forgotten. Well, fortunately, this is uh, no surprise to God. For this reason, he ordained yearly feasts and yearly celebrations for the purpose of reminding the Jewish people of the great things that God had done on their behalf. And now, for instance, we have communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, don't forget Don't forget me, and don't forget what I'm about to do. And 1 Peter, as uh, Pastor Aaron told us, Peter gets right to the point and doesn't take long to understand that the the people he was writing to were suffering some trials. They were being persecuted. They had some difficulties in life. And so what does Peter do in the opening lines of his epistle? He points them to their salvation. 
He points them to the great gift that God has given them. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. He says, you have an inheritance which is imperishable. It's undefiled. It won't fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. So why does Peter start this way? Why does he have to remind the people of their salvation? Well, he wants them. He's worried that they might forget. He's worried that in the midst of their trials and tribulations, they might forget the great salvation, the great gift that has been given to them. And if they forget, then their devotion to God might fail. And this reminder not only uh, causes us to focus on our eternal destiny, but it also causes us to look at the process that brought us here. If we don't understand the process of our salvation, we won't appreciate and cherish the result. In verse 18... Peter uses the word translated redeemed. What is redemption? It's a word we hear as Christians quite often, but we may not be aware of its full meaning. Redemption is not the equivalent of salvation. Salvation speaks to the end result, our eternal life. Redemption, on the other hand, speaks to the process It speaks to the process that brought us our salvation. Our salvation came at a price. Redemption can best be understood in the ordinary context in which it was used. It was a term for money paid to pay back a prisoner of war or to buy the freedom of a slave. Literally, it means to set free by paying a ransom. And the word redemption, uh, therefore, is particularly applicable to us. What was our condition? What was our condition before our salvation? We were slaves. We were slaves to sin. Walking the course of this world in the lust of the flesh. And as slaves, we were powerless We were powerless to escape the cruelty of our master. We were destined to a life of bondage. We had no hope of freedom. We had no hope of ever enjoying the riches of freedom. Psalm 49 says it real clear. It says that the redemption of a man's soul is costly. That no man can pay the ransom required for his own soul. But God, but God, but God found a way. He found a way to pay our ransom. Well, how did he do that? Jesus said that I came into the world, I come into the world to give my life as a ransom for many. His life was our ransom. His life. He paid the price for our freedom. 
Think of it. We were redeemed by the one who created us. Our own creator paid the price. So what was that price? How costly was that price? Before we talk about the cost, let me ask you to do something. Consider your redemption in a very personal way. Make it real to you. It's not some, it's not some theological precept that is generally applicable to all mankind, but it's a personal act done by your creator on your behalf. Now look at uh, verses 18 and 19 of our passage. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The precious blood as of a lamb, the blood of Christ. Peter is saying, don't, over, don't, ever, don't ever overlook the price. Jesus gave his life. He suffered and died as payment for your freedom. No wonder Peter calls it precious. It was precious. It was costly. A Puritan writer named Thomas Watson once wrote, It costs more to redeem us than to make us. In the one, there was but the speaking of the word. In the other, there was the shedding of blood. And we know that crucifixion was the most, one of the most cruel and, and painful forms of execution ever devised by man. But even before the nails were pounded into the fists or to the hands and feet of Jesus and the cross lifted up, he suffered excruciating pain. He was beaten beyond recognition. Crown of thorns was thrust on his brow, and 39 lashes ripped open his back. In his own words, Jesus described his agony in Psalm 22. Listen to what he says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. And what is absolutely amazing? Jesus did this willingly. He knew the price. All we have to do is look at the the garden of Gethsemane to see the agony that he went through as he looked forward to the cross. 
to the price that he would have to pay for our ransom. Yet his love overcame. His love overcame. So why did Peter, why did Peter mention this redemption paid by Christ? Wasn't he already talking to Christian believers? And weren't they already aware of their salvation and redemption? Of course they were. But Peter was worried. He was worried that they might lose sight of this great work of God, especially in the heat of the persecution that they were facing. So my question is, how are we doing? Are we walking through life without giving much thought to the great price that was paid by Christ for us, for our salvation? Do we take our salvation for granted as if it was somehow deserved? Do we need a reminder? In Christ's letter to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation, he criticized the church for leaving its first love. In all their activity for God, they had forgotten Jesus. They would forgotten Jesus and the price that he had paid for their salvation. And if the church in Ephesus can forget, so can we. And the more we forget, the more distance we become from Christ. Listen carefully. We can never love Jesus as we should if we fail to repeatedly consider the great Christ, the great price that he paid on our behalf. We can never love Jesus as we should if we fail to repeatedly consider the great price that he paid on our behalf. Never. He gave everything. And as we consider this great price of redemption, Peter tells us to remember another important truth. Jesus died and suffered for you. Verse 20 says, For for he has foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. For your hand, for you, his hands were pierced. For your sake, his heart burst. For your sake, blood rode freely down the cross. For my sake, and for your sake. So knowing all this, forgetting not the cost paid for our salvation, what is our response? What is our response? How should we live in light of this great thing? Peter gives us a series of commands, not suggestions, but commands. And one response that should immediately, immediately come from remembering the cost is in verse 17. There, Peter tells us that understanding this great price will produce fear. Look what he says. If you address this father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. So, what does he mean, walk in fear? Are we as Christians to walk in fear? Of course not. 
We're held securely in Christ. So the word translated fear must mean something else. Peter must have something else in mind. We normally think of fear as being frightened or scared. This is something different. Let's try to sort it out. But before we begin, let me say this. I struggle. I struggle with the words to best describe this paradox. For it is indeed a paradox. We're to walk in fear and yet not be afraid. We are to walk in fear and yet delight in his presence. There's a verse in the, uh, in the song Amazing Grace, which I think really clearly describes this ministry. He says, by grace you brought my heart to fear, and by grace my fear relieved. I don't understand all that. But I do understand that uh, it's true. <laughs> and I think Peter gives us a hint in his passage to what he's talking about here. Note how he refers to God, verse 17, as the one who partially judges according to each one's work. In other words, we will all appear before God to give an account, every one of us. Everyone who has ever taken a breath on this earth will one day appear before God. And Pastor Aaron referred to this several weeks ago. He referred to the reality that this reality is for believers and unbelievers alike. And as this reality that is somehow tied to Peter's use of the word fear. In addition, Peter says that this fear is also rooted in something more. He says the cost of our salvation. Look what he says here. In verse 18, conduct yourselves in fear in verse 17 during the time of your stay on earth, what? Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. So in other words, knowing the awful price that Christ paid on our behalf for our redemption, we walk in fear. This God, this holy, unapproachable God, this holy, unapproachable God who we call Father, hates sin. So much so that he gave himself to stamp it out. So much so that he will judge all of us. And we will all give account for our lives before him. Even now, as we journey through life, God hates a sin in our lives, doesn't he? He hates our sin. And he will bring us to account for that. He will discipline us as a father disciplines his child. So God will discipline us. If this be so, then how should we respond? With fear, not fright but with an awesome fear born out of a deep respect and reverence for the one who will judge all of mankind. Look at Isaiah, referred to today. Referred to today, Isaiah appearing before the throne of God. What did he say? In utter humility, in utter reverence, he says, woe is me for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. Just the sight 
Just the sight of a holy God cut him to the core. He's a broken man. This is the same God. This is the same God before, you, before whom you and I will appear someday. Think of it. It seems so distant, so unreal, so far away, but it, it will happen. We will appear before the God just like Isaiah appeared before God. Surely as the sun rises and the sun sets, it will happen. One, things I, one of the things I hated to hear from my mom was, can you guess? Wait till your father gets home. <laughs> we probably all heard that. Wait till your father gets home. Do you want to ruin a kid's day? <laughs> and tell him that. My day was ruined. And it was the longest day that I, I'd spent. It seemed like eternity until my dad would get home. Why? Because I f- feared my father. It wasn't because I didn't think he loved me. But the very thought of him being displeased with what I did brought anxiety in my own heart. I feared to face him. One last point. Walk in fear. Walk in fear. This is not a suggestion, but a command. Peter is saying, do not take your redemption for granted. Do not act like it was somehow deserved. Do not minimize what has been done for you, but revere and honor the one who called you out of darkness into light, the one whom you call Father. A Christian life that is not filled with reverent worship is a life that has very little understanding of who God is. An understanding of his majestic grandeur and an understanding of his perfection perfect holy perfection forces us to our knees forces to our knees and on respect to understand that God is a consuming fire produces within us a, a healthy regard for the one who will judge all mankind for their sin even ours so as we, we stand in awe and respect and fear we begin to understand that our life as Christians, our journey with Christ, is a serious matter. It came at great cost and requires a response, a serious response by those who call upon his name. This is what Peter's saying here in the rest of the passage. Get serious. Get serious about the way you live in light of the great cost that Christ paid on our behalf. So look at verse 13. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. What is he saying? What is implied in this command? That we are not to rest in our salvation, that we are not to wait until our eventual call to glory and do nothing, that our salvation is not the end, but the beginning. Our salvation is the beginning of a life of action. The King James translation provides a better word picture of what it means to prepare. The King James says, gird up the loins 
of your mind. In Peter's day, men wore loose, loose robes. Say that again three times. <laughs> Can't do it. <laughs> anyway, they wore these robes. And in time of battle, they would gird up or tie up the robes around their waist so they'd be free to move about. They didn't want any entanglement to interfere or hinder their ability to do battle. Peter then is applying this term to our minds. He says, gird up, tie up your minds, get yourself disentangled from the hindrances of the world. Tie down the loose ends and be ready for action because it's coming. If you don't know it already, it's coming. You see, God has not called us to sit idly by and wait for the rapture. As Christians, we are in a battle, and we are commanded to take action, to fight. We are commanded to, to make disciples, to share the good news, to fight the good fight for the King of kings and the Lord of lords, a command we simply cannot fulfill unless our minds are ready, unless our minds are ready for the action about to take place. And then he tells us in verse 13, he says, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit. Well, what do we think of when we think of the word sober? We think of alcohol and the effects it has upon us. In excess, alcohol will uh, affect us in ways that uh, it wouldn't otherwise. Our ability to do even the simplest things is diminished through an excessive use of alcohol. When we get stopped by police, for example, for suspicion of uh, drunk driving, the police officer puts us through a series of, of roadside tests, all designed to uh, see how we do responding to simple commands. He checks our balance. He checks our concentration. He checks our uh, coordination. All of these things are affected by the alcohol. So spiritually, when uh, Paul, Peter says, keep sober in spirit, what does it mean to keep sober in spirit? We can become so infatuated with the world that like a drunk person, we begin to lose focus. And we begin to function in ways that are ineffective for our walk with Christ. And I think that's Peter's concern here. So what does he mean by keeping your spirit? Let's go keeping sober in spirit. Let's go back to our alcohol example. When you're sober, you're clear-minded. You're focused. You're in self-control. And it's the same when when we talk about our spiritual lives. A sober spirit means a clear-headed mind, a disciplined life, a disciplined heart, a life that is focused on what is important. In other words, Peter wants us to keep our eyes focused on the battle, doing what is necessary to prepare our hearts for the fight ahead of us. We're so easily distracted, aren't we? We get so easily distracted. We get lazy. And we get indifferent. But we cannot live soberly for Christ unless we clear our minds of all the junk and discipline our minds to concentrate on the things that matter in life on the battle before us. Discipline is always costly. 
I hate the word discipline. <laughs> it's costly. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes dedication. But think about it. Is discipline too much to ask for us in light of what Christ has done? Then after telling us to prepare our minds for action with a a clear and sober dedication, Peter turns our attention to hope. He says in verse 13, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So earlier I asked you, how should we then live in light of the great cost of our salvation? And Peter has been revealing to us certain qualities that should be evident in the life of every true believer. We've learned about honoring and revering God. We've learned about being ready for the battle. And we've learned about discipline in our lives so that we can focus on the battle and the things before us. And now he tells us to fixate our attention on hope on the battle's end. Whenever we see the word hope used in the Christian uh, context, we need to understand that it's a different type of hope than the world's hope. What is the world's hope? The world's hope is, gee, I hope something turns out all right, but there's no assurance that it will. But to the Christian, in the Christian context, whenever you see the word hope, it's best defined as a confident expectation of certainty. It's a certainty that we look forward to. It's a certainty we look forward to with confident expectation. So Peter says, to fix your hope on the coming, on the certainty of the coming of Jesus Christ, a coming that will bring the battle that you're in right now to an end. More than that, he tells us to fix our hope on the grace to be brought to you. What does he mean by that? In other words, we begin our journey with grace, and you know what? We end our journey with grace. We no longer deserve it now, and we don't deserve it then. It's grace that brought us to salvation, and it's grace that will bring us to heaven. It's all grace. Grace, grace, grace. So fix your eyes on the grace. And as I as I said before, by fixing our eyes on God's grace, on his continuing grace now and in the future, we are not only honoring the one who grants that grace, but are finding strength to finish the battle. These people needed strength to finish the battle. And so Paul, uh, Peter says, fix your mind on the second coming. Fix your mind on the battle's end. Hope of our inheritance keeps us going, doesn't it? Hope of our eternal life keeps us going. And when you know the outcome, like we do, you don't lose heart. You don't lose heart. And as I mentioned before, the problem we face is that we too easily forget We're always in danger of forgetting the sweetness of God's grace. We can become so worldly in our affection that we no longer are hoping for Christ's return. At least not yet. 
The return of Christ has lost its impact in our lives. Because we never think about it. And it must grieve God's heart. It must grieve his heart when the, the riches of this world become more important to us than the glorious inheritance that he has produced for us. Our hearts need to be one with the Apostle John's, who at the end of the book of Revelation said what? Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Come quickly. Finally, Peter directs our attention, again, with our salvation and our redemption of mind, to another quality of the Christian. In verses 14 and 16, he tells us to walk in holiness. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holiness. Holiness is a word rightly reserved for God. It's a word used to describe its separateness. God is unattainably separate from everything. He is superior to all creation. He is transcendent above all. Scripture proclaims that God alone is holy. He alone is separate. There is none like him. And so a part of his holiness is his moral purity. And when we as Christians think of the holiness of God, we think of his moral purity. And I believe this is what Peter is referring to here. We are to live in purity as God himself is pure. Now God, being the standard of purity, we can never be pure as God is pure. But Peter tells us then, be holy. Be holy like God is holy. And in Ephesians, Paul uh, emphasizes, he tells us to be imitators of God, to be imitators of his holy and righteous nature. If our goal is to look like Jesus, then our walk should look like Jesus, should not? So how can we be holy? You ever thought of that? How can we be holy? How can I be holy? Well, Peter gives us a simple answer. Quit being like you were. Quit being like you were. Do not conform to your former way of life. John MacArthur once said that there is a, in this a, a positive and a negative. The negative is don't act like you used to act. The positive is act like Jesus. In other words, stop doing what you did before your salvation and start doing what God does. Break away from your past. Leave it behind. And this is not a suggestion. It's a command. And in light of what he did for us, in light of the price that he paid for our redemption, should it not be the desire of our hearts to live holy lives for Jesus? Should it not be the the yearning of our hearts to walk in a manner that's pleasing to him?
But the good news is, we're not without the ability to say no to our past life, are we? We are no longer slaves to sin. We have been raised to a new life in Christ. And we have dwelling within us the Holy Spirit that allows us and gives us the power to say no to our past life. So we can no longer say, we can no longer say that holiness is impossible. It is possible to live a righteous life. Not a sinless life, but a righteous life. A life imitating the holy God we call Father. In summary, remember the cost, walk in fear, join the battle, be ready, be serious, fix your hope on the battle's end, and leave your former life behind you. Act like Jesus. In his farewell address to the people, Moses repeatedly commanded them to remember, to remember that God himself is the one who paid their ransom so that they might be free. Continually, he spoke these words throughout his his dissertation to the people. He spoke these words, you shall remember. You shall remember. You're not in Egypt any longer. You have been set free. You've been set free through the miraculous power of God. So live like it. Choose life. Choose to live life as a child of God. A story is told about Abraham Lincoln, who while on a walk passed by the slave block and noticed that there was a a young black girl up for auction. Moved with compassion, he bid and won her. And uh, afterwards, he said to the girl, you are free. And she looked at him and said, "What what does that mean? And he replied, it means you are free. And she says, does it mean I I can say what I want to say? Yes, my dear, you can say what you want to say. Does it mean I, I can be who I want to be? Yes, my dear, you can be who you want to be. Does it mean I, I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, you can go wherever you want to go. And with tears running down her face, she said, then I will go with you. This story says two things to me. George, where are your tears? And George, will you follow? George, as the cost of your redemption, 
pierce your heart to such a degree that you are filled with cheerful gratitude. So deep that you are eager to follow the one who paid the price. And reflecting on this story, a, a pastor named Anthony Carter wrote these words. To redeem us, Christ does not reach into his treasure bag. He reached into himself, the treasure of all treasures, and set us free. Like the redeemed slave girl, I choose to go with him. How about you? How about you? Let's bow. Word of prayer. Lord, uh, thank you for reminding us today of the great price that was paid as our ransom for our freedom, for our eternal life. You have reserved in heaven for each of us a place of glory, an unfading place of glory, undefiled. And we're so thankful for that. We're so thankful that you chose to set us free. And let us take our walk with Christ seriously so that we can honor you and revere you and bring glory to you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.